I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Who can describe the athletic heart? That was a rhetorical question that legendary sports writer Dan Jenkins posed to his award-winning sports writing daughter, Sally Jenkins. It's the question that both guided and inspired her new book, The Right Call, What Sports Can Teach Us About Work and Life. She's been interviewing elite athletes and coaches and covering sports for 40 years and has been a feature writer and columnist at the Washington Post for more than 20. And while people like Rafael Nadal, Michael Jordan, and Simone Biles have extraordinary, seemingly superhuman talents, Jenkins says they weren't just born that way. They became champions through intense practice and self-discipline, through learning from failure, from caring coaches who were demanding and honest, and of course driven by a profound and abiding love of their sport. Well, you and I, or at least I, will never compete in the Olympics or the Super Bowl or an NBA final or at Wimbledon. Jenkins says there's a lot we can take away from these superstars and apply to our own lives. And Sally Jenkins, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Well, you do write that elite elite athletes can teach us mere mortals about how to overcome some of life's adversities and how to be our best or maybe better selves. What has covering athletes for four decades taught you about you? Well, it teaches that we're all vulnerable to pressure. That's a really common experience no matter what you do, whether you're an Olympic swimmer or you're a sports writer uh, sitting at a desk on deadline or you know anybody else who works from the neck up at a desk. Uh, your body doesn't know what's stressing you or pressuring you, actually. And so one of the really interesting insights that I had uh, during reporting the book was was that very fact and that all of us can learn ways to mitigate pressures and stresses stresses to perform better under pressure and make better decisions under pressure. And a follow-up, I mean, how much do you think life is like sports or sports is like life and how much do you think they are actually different? Well, the great 49ers quarterback Steve Young said that that yeah, sports are the greatest human laboratory in the world. Hmm. And I think he's right. I, I actually think it's a uh, it's a pretty good lesson in neurology. It's a pretty good lesson in biology. And it's a pretty good lesson in psychology to watch all these people. And the interesting advantage of observing athletes and coaches under pressure is that unlike most executives, they're making their decisions right in front of you in real time. Whereas, you know, say Disney's Bob Iger is making calculations and decisions behind closed doors. And we really only infer his process from results or, you know, an occasional shareholders meeting. So, you know, these people are actually a a really good kind of laboratory for examining a lot of these issues. Now, of course, we're speaking here in Philadelphia, known as a great sports town, very passionate sports fans. And and what's fascinating is when the teams are are winning, which they have been occasionally, or at least been on a, a bit of a winning streak, it's amazing how much it connects the city. It's the glue that seems to hold people together. You know, I think underneath it all, the audience senses that we're watching something quite important. Uh, It's, you know, we give enormous tax breaks to owners to build stadiums. We We give them public money. And underneath that, I think, is the sense that uh, it's a worthwhile exercise. But we don't really spell out why and what it is that's going on on out there, uh, apart from pure entertainment, you know, gladiatorial sort of spectacle. Uh, But I actually think it's not frivolous. I think it's quite important. 
And and the more we can spell that out, the more it can solve some of our public issue questions like, you know, is it worth uh, spending money on stadiums? Is it is the athletic scholarship at universities really worth defending? Uh, you know, things like questions like that become a little easier to answer. What's the relationship between academics and athletics? When we examine the import of what athletes can learn and teach, those questions uh, become a little easier. Do you think we celebrate the we broadly speaking celebrate the wrong things when it comes to elite sports and, and elite athletes? I think so. I think so. I think what they're really great at, uh, what they do that's most important for the rest of us is they learn to mitigate their weaknesses and they cultivate a resilience that I think the rest of us could could envy. Uh, a lot of the rest of us are more easily destroyed when we face a, a, a setback. And we also don't categorize our decisions very carefully. A lot of us drift in our lives or we make decisions by default. Uh, and athletes are very, very, very self-determined, very granular in their processes and very methodical and organized in their approach to their craft. And that's something that you can, I think, take a lot of lessons from. And, and that's the real point of the right call. Well, you also debunk some myths. The number one myth being that athletes are, are born with certain these superhuman talents that we see displayed and on the field or on the court. And while um, I'm sure someone like Serena Williams was born with a talent that I clearly don't have, um, that, that they, they get to where they got through the dint of hard work. The fact of the matter is that talent is a fractional part of this equation. People are certainly born with some predispositions, but my favorite example would be Peyton Manning, mm. you know, who was born the son of uh, Archie Manning, uh, a great uh, quarterback, NFL quarterback and collegiate quarterback, and was, you know, regarded as very much a golden boy uh, coming out of New Orleans, where he was born and raised and, and playing at the University of Tennessee. But people forget that Peyton Manning by his third year in the NFL, was only a 32-32 and 32 quarterback in terms of his one-loss record. He was a 500 quarterback, and he had led the league in interceptions. Wow. I think it's two of his first three years. He was not a finished product. He had some real weaknesses that he had to mitigate. And as Peyton told me for the book, he said, at that stage of my career, it was sort of like, who am I going to be? And he becomes a Hall of Fame quarterback, through a really intensive process of self-examination and diagnosis of, you know, some pretty marginal weaknesses and some more pronounced weaknesses. But my favorite example is that he sat down with his, his head coach, Tony Dungy, and his quarterback's coach, Jim Caldwell, and they looked at tape of every single interception he had ever thrown. I mean, every one. It was an excruciating process, sure. you know. Uh, it's, 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 it could be ego-destroying, but Manning really used it to get a grip on what was causing him to make those kinds of mistakes. And one of the things that was causing it was they they found commonalities in some of the, the poor throws he was making. His footwork was not great under pressure. When defensive linemen would dive at his feet, his feet would get very, very jumpy. And so they designed a drill where uh, in practice, coaches would hurl really heavy sandbags at his feet to make his feet more stable, you know, for him to learn some stability under pressure. So that's a that's a really, you know, specific example of the kinds of things a, a great athlete does 
in order to tran- transcend the plateau that that mere, you know, uh, talent or mere, you know, affinity for a certain job gets you to. Most of the rest of us pick out something we want to do or want to learn to do. We get pretty good at it and then we stop. I mean, that's a real autopsy when you take apart the, what's wrong with your game and try to reconstruct it from there. You also mentioned Tony Dungy, um, who, of course, was his coach. And, and he is quoted in your in your book as saying um, that his coaching philosophy and methods um, was that he treated you so well. He treated you like such a professional, like a grown-up, that you just didn't want to let him down. And it's interesting to think about this relationship between players and their coaches and what makes for a, a good relationship and what makes for a more toxic one. Yes. I mean, that was that was uh, Manning talking about Dungy was really interesting. Uh, you know, another thing he and Dungy and Jim Caldwell did was they looked at tape of all of the balls that Manning threw that should have been interceptions, but he just got a little lucky hmm. uh, because the defender dropped the ball or, you know, some some fortunate, you know, maybe a receiver made a, an extraordinary catch, but it was a poor decision to throw the ball where he did. And the only way those sorts of examinations could have happened with Peyton Manning, who's, you know, by nature, I think, was fairly exposed as a young prodigy. You know, everyone was looking to see, is Peyton Manning going to live up to his number one draft pick status is Peyton Manning going to live up to his, you know, rich contract. And that's an, that's an exposed sensitive place to be for a, a young man. And Dungy knew that. And Jim Caldwell knew that. And they, they worked very carefully with Manning and what the great coaches do. And I don't care if it's an executive in an office or a book editor or a newspaper editor or a coach, they never presented the problem to Peyton Manning without presenting the fix. Hmm. It's a crucial distinction. It's the difference between blame and diagnosis, right? Accusate, you know, um, so many coaches think that being a boss uh, and getting performance out of people is to say, you need to do better, you know, to drive them, to be demanding. And in fact, you can only be demanding if you're presenting the solution to the problem and not just the problem. And so many coaches, poor coaches I've covered over the years, have never understood that difference. Well, and it's about the relationship and 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 building advice based on the relationship between the player and the coach. Yes. Peyton Manning trusted Tony Dungy's intentions. He believed that Tony Dungy was out to uh, to do what was best for Peyton Manning and for the entire organization as opposed to what was best for himself. And again, that's another critical difference. You know, there's so many strivers and climbers who get to the top of organizations with pure sort of aggression or uh, dynamic personality. And then we all are baffled as to why those leaders don't work out hmm. uh, or why they, you know, their their organizations implode, you know. And, and the simple answer is that the really great leaders, the truly great leaders, uh, don't care about themselves and their own fortunes as much as they care about the fate of the entire group. Well, Pat Summit, who I know you covered uh, a lot in your career, I mean, I don't think demanding and driven would be uh, too uh, too easy a words uh, to describe her. She talked about, uh, I don't treat my players all the same. I treat them fair. She said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, but she also said, you know, start hard and, and then ease up after that. Right. I mean, Pat, again, Pat Summit 
could never have coached her players the way she did if they didn't, if they and their parents, by the way, or their grandparents or whoever had raised these young women, if they didn't completely trust Pat's intentions. You know, intentionality is a huge factor here. Uh, groups who sense uh, selfishness or self-aggrandizement will very subtly undermine your authority. Everybody studies leadership from exactly the wrong way up, according to a, a really wonderful expert I talked to for the book named Robert Hogan, who's been studying leadership personality for many, many years for you know, government and military and other institutions. And the fact of the matter is that followers are much more important than the leader. Yes, Pat was a demanding, dynamic leader, but it was only because she had the ability to make people trust her. Uh, when they don't trust your intentions, something really interesting happens. And this was perhaps my favorite part of reporting the right call. Uh, when a group distrusts the leader, they'll essentially frag you. Uh, they will take you down in very small, subtle ways that add up over time to implosion of your organization. And uh, we saw a great example of that with Urban Meyer, uh, the coach of the Jacksonville NFL team, who lasted less than a full season. He was extraordinarily, insultingly demanding. You know what, Sally? Incredibly yeah, hold, hold on to that thought only because we have to take a very short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with award-winning sports writer Sally Jenkins. Over her 40-year career, she has talked with hundreds of elite athletes and coaches, and she's found a lot of wisdom that can come from intense competition about practice and discipline, even failure. We're talking about her new book. It's called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. I had to interrupt you there, Sally, only because we were coming up in a break. But you were talking about leadership and I guess followership and, and the importance of of knowing how people who are following the, these leaders, how they feel about these leaders. Yes, it's a it's a subject I'm obviously super enthusiastic yes, about right. because I think it's a, it's an important insight, which is that uh, followers can employ something called a leveling mechanism, is what uh, sociologists and uh, other experts call it. And what happens is Pat Riley of the Miami Heat described it better than anyone I've heard. He said, when when people don't trust a leader, what they will do is subtly gear down their efforts and start enrolling everybody else in the organization in their own cycle of disappointment. And so you see this spiral and this deterioration that can happen. Uh, and we saw it a very vivid example uh, last year with Urban Meyer, uh, the NFL coach. He was a, a, a prodigy collegiate head coach who was an absolute bust in the NFL uh, because he was selfish, insulting, hmm. uh, did not live his own rules. And the Jacksonville Jaguars took him out with a series of media leaks. And finally, he was fired. Well, let's talk about winning and losing. <laughs> of course, this is something that happens every day um, on an elite uh, sports arena, wherever it is. Uh, how important is it to to learn from some of those mistakes and some of those failures, even more than learning from, from some of those wins? You know, we always ask the question, you know, what do you learn more from, winning or losing? It's sort of the $64,000 question in sports, right? We ask it all the time of athletes and ourselves. And I think the fact is that it's so hard to answer because they're so related. You can't really separate one from the other. If you win too much, you get overcome. 
confident and arrogant and lazy, not lazy necessarily, but you, you don't really examine your shortcomings or your unconscious weaknesses. And if you lose too much, it becomes a really bad habit and kind of a psychological wall, right? Uh, the fact of the matter is that you need a little of each. Hmm. Uh, and failure is a really good diagnostic. Most of the coaches I've ever known dread the prospect of going undefeated for that very reason. Uh, you don't learn much with unbroken success. Pat Summit literally said to me one day, I asked her, how's the team look for this year? And she said, you know, if we lose one game, we have a really good chance. And if we lose two games, I promise you we'll win the whole thing. Wow. Wow. And it's a very, you know, I, I burst out laughing. It was a remarkable thing to hear. But what she meant was if, if her team lost a couple of games, they would play right into her hands, be much more open to coaching, much more open to examining their, you know, their shortfalls. But she herself hated losing. I mean, would get sick about losing. I think she, there was an interview on 60 Minutes. You know, she did. But the funny thing about Pat was, if you think about it, she coached 38 seasons. Uh, she won eight national championships, which was a, a record. Uh, but 30 years out of her career, out of her 38-year career, she went home a loser. If she really hated losing that much, she could not have done that. You know, uh, she was much more gracious, accepting loser than people realize. She was she was a great. Uh, her, she had great sportsmanship. Uh, she really respected it when someone was excellent. Uh, I remember when she went into the University of Connecticut locker room after uh, losing to one of their great undefeated teams, and and she that was led by Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, and and she said, "I just want to tell you guys, you're everything that." you know, the game should be, uh, oh. which was a lovely thing for her to do. Um, you know, that that was the real Pat. I mean, she hated losing because it frustrated her and it doesn't feel good. But she also, she understood, uh, like like all the greats do, that it's almost like an engineer's mind, some of these people. You have to stress something to make it stronger and make it better. Let me play a clip from an interview I, I had with uh, Billie Jean King back in 2014. Now, of course, she's the winner of 39 Grand Slam titles, and we talked about this new team that she was starting here in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Freedoms, but we also talked about coaching and her career, and she described what it felt like when she lost. Let's give it a listen. And were you someone that would beat themselves up over a loss? Or oh, yeah. Say what, you Total. Know, just Chris Everett and I totally the same. Oh, certain Chris, shots. Chris Everett and I used to talk about this all the time when we were oh, really? when we were playing. Oh my God, we get so depressed. Oh, we're like crazed. I think Steffi Groff used to go to bed for three days after when she had a horrible loss. Yeah, wow. we hate losing. Champions hate to lose. The pain is unbearable. It's horrible. Oh, I can't stand it. Even to this day, <laughs> oh, I, I can't stand it. No, I can't. I understand. I would probably be. I, I know. I would be the same. I'm a perfectionist, which is can be painful. I've gotten better, not much though. Everybody around me must think, "Oh God, you know, we're going to have a day with her. It's going to be tough." <laughs> she's so great, Billie Jean King. But talking about losing, and yeah, she's and this was, of course, you know, after she had stopped playing, but she still hated this thought of losing. Oh, listen, Julie Foudy, the great midfielder on the U.S. women's soccer team that won the that epic World Cup in 1999 to kind of start the women's. American soccer revolution, she still remembers the the worst losses of their their careers. You know, um, losing lasts forever with these folks. Yeah. It really does. The it's funny. The wins are very ephemeral for them, and it's the reason for that is because they're much more interested in the pursuit than the end goal. I mean, I think that that's underneath that. Like Billie Jean's 
intolerance for losing and Chris Everett's intolerance for losing uh, is because it's an act of self-definition for them, right? It's an act of self-fashioning. And when you find yourself wanting, uh, there's a lot of self-recrimination that comes with that. Uh, but you know, they, the truth is that they love the pursuit. Uh, that's, that's the fact. The, the, the greatest part of Chris Everett's career was her rivalry with Martina Navratilova. Chrissy told me flatly, I mean, Martina beat her for two straight years, two straight years. Uh, Chris could not win a big match against Martina. Um, again, if she hated losing that much, she could not have borne it. What she did was she got better and better and she came back and won uh, two more Grand Slam titles, beating Martina in the finals at the 85 and 86 French Opens. And Chrissy will tell you flat out that Martina kept her in the game much longer than she would have played otherwise. And, and she will tell you that the 1985 French Open was the single most joyous hmm. uh, victory of her career. And so you trade that grief for uh, and that discomfort uh, and that personal pain for great joy as well. well and they and, know that. And they know that. And, and we should talk about joy. And obviously this, you know, this love of whatever game it is that they're playing. Um, and I was thinking of the Andre Agassi memoir, Open, where he talked about how much he hated tennis and got me rethinking his whole game on the court about how can you play so hard something that doesn't give you joy back? Well, I think there's a couple of explanations for that. One is that I think Andre eventually did find joy in the game. Uh, he he loved the the craft and you could see what a handsy player he was. He loved the feeling of, of striking a tennis ball really purely and really cleanly. And if you talk to Billie Jean King, She'll tell you how much she hated losing, but she will also tell you how deeply, deeply, deeply she loves tennis. I mean, she's 80 years old and she was out hitting at Wimbledon the other day and you could see the pleasure in her hands, uh, you know, hitting volleys at the net. So I I think those two things go hand in hand with with these athletes. The the love of craft is is, is as important a factor as the winning and the losing something for us all to keep in mind for ourselves about finding that thing that we love deeply and doing it. Yes. You have to find the thing that you would do for free, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, and if you can do that, not everyone's able to, not everybody is that lucky, but if you can uh, and you find something that that you you can work at, even when it's not fun at all, uh, but, but you, you work at it because you, you enjoy the, the overall process and the outcome you just got a leg up on the rest of the world. Uh, you know, these people love striking the tennis ball. Uh, I, having talked to Andre Agassi, I know that uh, going away to camp as a child pained him. I know that his relationship with his father pained him, and that became tangled up with tennis. But I think that he came to make his peace with tennis apart from all the painful parts of it. That is Sally Jenkins. She's an award-winning sports writer. In fact, has been covering sports for 40 years. She's got a new book we've been talking about, and it's called The Right Call, What Sports Can Teach Us About Work and Life. There are athletes that have these slumps or they choke or they sort of just lose lose track of their ability to play the game. Do you understand or does anyone understand what, what's going on with them? Everybody chokes. Everybody, Everybody chokes. Everybody chokes. Yeah. I've seen the greatest champions in the world choke. 
Chris Everett will tell you she choked a couple of matches. I mean, she should have won the 1984 U.S. Open. Uh, she was I, just a, you know, two really good shots away from from winning that over. I mean, I still I watch replays of that match and I still don't know how she lost it to Navratilova, but wow. she did. Uh, she should have won that one, you know. Um, so I, I so that and and Chrissy was the single toughest competitor I ever covered. Everybody chokes. What athletes do that the rest of us mistake is they mitigate it, they understand it, they accept it, and they find a way to uh, be more resilient in the face of it and and not do it the next time, right? So Chrissy comes back from that 1984 U.S. Open choke and wins the 85 and the 86 French Opens. Um, the the Kansas City Chiefs, I, in the probably the greatest playoff game in the NFL I ever covered, were uh, one play away from beating the New England Patriots and making the Super Bowl, and a guy lined up four inches off sides, and uh, it it negated a, a, an interception. Tom Brady drove the New England Patriots down the field to score a touchdown and force overtime, and the Patriots won the game and went on to uh, the Super Bowl to win the Super Bowl. The Kansas City Chiefs came back the very next year and won the Super Bowl. Hmm. This is what they do, right? They don't they don't get easily destroyed. You talk about practice, and obviously these are people who spend hours and hours and hours, probably every day, practicing their craft. But what's interesting is you say that they they practice what they dislike and what they're worst at, and you say uh, uh, about probably the rest of us that we basically don't practice what we're bad at. We just figure out a workaround. But for them, they have to dig in and, and, and figure out what went wrong and try to correct it. I mean, probably the best example is someone who takes up tennis and then and then they run around their lousy backhand right, right? Exactly. you know the rest of us the rest of us run around our backhands or you know we we kick the ball out of the sand trap right without ever really learning how to how to hit a good bunker shot in golf i mean the 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 examples abound i mean if you take up the guitar there's certain things that it just hurt your fingers to try to learn to do i know from personal experience and you just don't go there you know you don't go that far down the keyboard right uh, so this is how the rest of us live, and this is exactly what the greats do not do. Uh, they, they find the things that they are worst at. Uh, there's a, a term called, you know, unconscious incompetency. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that none of us sees our own weaknesses very well. Athletes and coaches spend a lot of time looking for those uh, methodically uh, and and then correcting them or working on them until a weakness becomes a strength or at, or at least neutral so that no one else can prey on them, right? Uh, and, and a lot of times they flip the script in really interesting ways that surprises the competitor. Uh, and, and that's a real psychological advantage. When a competitor thinks you have a weakness, they go at it and they find that it's actually not a weakness at all. Uh, it can mentally sort of undo them. And all of a sudden, you're the one with the upper hand. Well, let me play a clip of an interview I did with uh, Diana Nyad. This was back in 2016. She had written a memoir called Find a Way. And this was uh, about back in 2013. She was 64 years old at the time. She swam the 110 miles from Cuba to Florida. In fact, becoming the first person to complete it without the age of aid of a shark cage. 
This was the fifth time that she tried to do it. Uh, It took her something like 53 hours, and she had to fight really powerful currents and nausea, dehydration, and these uh, toxic jellyfish. Here she is talking about her mindset going into the challenge. You had done this or tried this four times before. Was there a point at which you said to yourself, I'm going to make it this time? I'm going to make it every time. Every time. I mean, you, you don't ever, you know, you don't, you don't stand at the base of, of Everest and say, well, I probably won't make it up this time. You have all the grit, all the intelligence, all the group prepared, and you're shocked when the weather comes in or, you know, someone is dying of altitude sickness or, God forbid, someone falls off the edge of the mountain. And here, every time we stood on the shore of Cuba, I was more brash and cocky when I was 28 and tried it. I was like, jellyfish, sharks, get out of my way. Here I come. And I was humbled quickly. But all four times you stand there and say, there has been no stone unturned. We're going all the way across. And you're you're crushed when it doesn't work out. I mean, that kind of determination, Sally, is just extraordinary. It's marvelous, isn't it? I love it Diana. Uh, you know, her, her first attempt was at 26, I guess. And then her last one was up. She was over 60 years old when she made it. Uh, the thing I love about Diana's story is that it was an exercise in problem solving as much as anything. Uh, you know, the first time she tried it, she got pulled by the currents. You know, she ended up swimming towards Brownsville, Texas. So... On her most successful, on her final successful attempt, they had a great navigator. They understood the currents. They had really studied that piece of water. Uh, they had experts on board uh, who knew the exact right time of year to try it. Uh, you know, uh, they had devised ingenious things to deal with jellyfish stings. Uh, they they really they had a. Uh, a a continual problem solving mentality and they took real uh interest they were that that whole crew diana and her coach bonnie stoll and the navigators took real uh deep interest in trying to figure out all of those various mutual jigsaw type problems until they finally cracked the code and came up with uh the right time of year the right approach in the water the right gels to put in her stomach so that she wasn't you know, swallowing seawater and getting sick uh, hmm. in the water uh, and had enough nutrition in her body, literally, and enough hydration to make it. All of those things were almost engineering problems. It's interesting to think of the psychology of, of a solo uh athlete like Diana Nyad, of course, there's a whole team around her. And those people that play on a team, whether it's the Eagles or, you know, the, the 76ers, the, the kind of psychology that goes into that. You know, nobody succeeds alone. Uh, Michael Phelps won, you know, a record eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics, the greatest swimmer who ever lived. But he could not have won even one without his coach, Bob Bowman, uh, and a lot who was a really ingenious, marvelous uh, thinker about uh, about swimming. And I mean, it's just there's always a partnership. That's one thing I would say. Uh, These these individuals, they they do have to have a, a special mentality. But the fact of the matter is that there's somebody getting them across the water or up the hill. They're, they don't do it all by themselves. And that is a real misconception. Well, and I'm, I'm watching uh, Wimbledon, I think, as a lot of people are. And it's, you know, these are largely solo players playing on, on center court. And, yeah, there's their team that they will sort of give them a high sign to from time to time. Oh, I mean, this is why you'll see them dart up into the stands and, and throw themselves in the arms of like four or five people. Uh, you know, there's nutritionists, there are, you know, physical 
uh, rehab specialists. I mean, Novak Djokovic uh, works on a really fine physical edge. It takes a lot of expertise and work to keep him primed and peaked for these tournaments and flexible. You know, uh, that flexibility is man-made. You know, it's he wasn't born with these extreme ranges of motion. He's worked with a lot of uh, you know, experts to develop that. I mean, that's that's one thing I, it's a repetitive theme in the book. But uh, a, 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 I would say, I would hazard, I would say, you know, seven to eight tenths of what you see in a great athlete is a cultivated skill, not natural born. And that is Sally Jenkins. And the book is called The Right Call, What Sports uh, Teach Us About Work and Life. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscoane, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, and we're talking about sports, elite athletes, and again, our guest is Sally Jenkins. She's an award-winning sports writer, feature writer for The Washington Post, and again, she's got a new book we've been talking about called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. You talk about discipline as a form of quote-unquote self-rule, which I thought was a really interesting way to look at discipline. Flesh that out for us. Discipline is probably the most misunderstood, misapplied principle in leadership. Uh, So many people think it's about a kind of petty tyranny or demandingness over others. And the fact of the matter is that no adult takes kindly to being ordered around and told they need to be more disciplined unless they live in a barracks. Uh, Discipline is actually something that really great leaders, really great coaches or quarterbacks or whomever, point guards, uh, it's an inward fostered construct uh, that is voluntarily adopted either by yourself or within the group. Uh, Pat Summit used to say, discipline yourself so nobody else has to. Hmm. And she was considered one of the great disciplinarians in in the game of, of basketball. And yet that was her attitude really great leaders deal with discipline in a very finessing way because they understand that. They understand that what you need to be a great leader is buy-in. And and so she would appoint sort of a student leader on her teams who was the real kind of enforcer of the group ethic. And Mike Krzyzewski did the same thing. Um, they They all do. Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors talks about that as well. Uh, his his way of disciplining his team is to ask leaders like Steph Curry or Draymond Green to set the ethic uh, within the group themselves. You also talk about candor in sports, and I'm assuming um, when you're playing at that high level, you have to tell the truth. You have to be honest about what is going on. And I wonder, using that and applying it to the workplace or even to relationships, the importance of candor. I mean, candor delivered with heart and and care but how important that can be it's critical because the fact of the matter is that uh, corporate euphemism or you know polite sort of evasion in conversation people think it's couching and uh, and it's gentler but in fact it's insulting i think to the intelligence of the other person and people actually uh don't trust it they they 
they tend to sort of recoil from it. Uh, candor is essential on the issue of leaderly trust, right? And so uh, vagueness and evasions, uh, Pat Summit once said, people tend to fill in blanks with negatives. And so when you have this sort of default language that's not telling you anything, you assume the other person's actually, there's something they don't want to tell you. Uh, and it breeds a little bit of distrust and even paranoia. What are they not telling me? Why are they not dealing straight with me? What do I need to do to succeed? Or what do I need to do to please my boss? You know, that's all people really want to know. And when they don't hear it, it makes them actually uncomfortable. So you're not making people comfortable with this sort of cor corporate uh, buzzword, um, meaningless, you know, vague speech. As, as Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors told me, he said, you know, everyone has a, some kind of sign on the wall that says only the strong survive. Hmm. And he said, what does that even mean, right? It, it means very little. And, and so the great leaders deal in very direct, emotionally honest terms with their people. But again, they're always offering the solution or the fix when they describe the problem. And you say that, that many workplaces are, as you say here, full of vague statements delivered in a, a, a murmuring or couched way or worse, corporate euphemisms. This is a, a problem in the workplace. I mean, buzzwords seems to have, have like buzzwords have, and abstractions seem to have taken over American language in general. It drives me pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why, I, you know, all the chapters in the book, they talk about conditioning, discipline, practice. What do those words mean, right? So I try to deconstruct them very carefully and say, what do we mean when we talk about, say, culture? You know, what is a creative culture? Or, uh, you know, what are these words that we throw around so easily? Because I frankly get a headache when I hear them. Uh, great, great coaches, great locker room talk is, is, can be crude, but it is incredibly frank and emotionally mm -hmm. honest. You also say that, that many of us, and I would include myself, are, are not very good at making important decisions. We'll either doubt ourselves or, or procrastinate, very common. Um, athletes have to make decisions in real time. I mean, within it's, sometimes nanoseconds. It's really all that they do. You know, what's interesting is even the most inspirational, intuitive-looking movements by, say, a Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors or Michael Phelps in The Greatest Race of His Life, uh, in Beijing to beat Michael Kavich in the 100 meter butterfly, they are making decisions, micro decisions, nanosecond decisions, but they are, make no mistake, decisions. And that is really the most fascinating thing about them. Uh, they have worked and worked and worked and conditioned and and so deeply grooved uh, their abilities that that they are making split second decisions in the moment, but it's all actually married to method. And that's what's so interesting. Michael Phelps had to decide coming down the stretch against Michael Kavich with uh, the all-time gold medal record, you know, pretty much on the line. He had to decide whether to glide to the wall or chop to the wall. Hmm. And he chose a chop, which was a gamble, uh, but it was a decision. And he won the race by one one hundredth of a second. That's how quickly the messaging system between brain and body in a great athlete uh, and body back to brain. That's how efficient that messaging system has become. And that I find that so deeply interesting because we can all work on that messaging system because our physical conditioning, our body is married to our judgment, whether we know it or not. And that comes from practice. And it's sort of a thinking, not thinking at the same time. It's a feedback loop, right? And, and so what you want is you want to balance your attention and balance 
uh, your uh, your for lack of a better word, you know, again, the neurological messaging system, you want to make it efficient without over stressing or overthinking. Right. So swimming for Michael Phelps under Bob Bowman, uh, they they explicitly talked about this sort of thing. Phelps would internalize the distances that he was swimming. Bowman had been a music major in college and he wanted Phelps to internalize with conditioning and practice the, the distances and the strokes to the point that they were almost like measures of music. So when you're playing the piano, if you concentrate on individual notes, you will be more clumsy. There's a mountain of neuroscience about this. Uh, your attention is on the wrong thing. You're over-focusing, right? And so what you want to do is you want to be focusing on the entire measure and be playing it from a much more relaxed place. And what great athletes do is they allow uh, under pressure. It's not like they're rising to some extraordinary height. They are simply so well-prepared and so well-practiced that they are simply performing in their most relaxed and ordinary way. They are not, their performance is not deteriorating. It's not rising. It is, they are being who they are and have practiced to be for a very long time. You have a really moving and revealing story about the relationship between Martina Navratilova and Chrissy Everett. These were, they were, of course, were intense competitors, uh, but managed to forge this really long and lasting bond, connection, friendship, real love and, and respect. They had 80 matches together. 60 of them were finals, which is extraordinary. And interestingly, they both ended up with 18 grand slams. So kind of even Steven there. They both have been struggling with cancer, uh, which is another thing that, that has bonded them together. But it was so interesting to hear how they viewed each other in terms of competition. Like, for instance, Martina said that Chrissy Everett knew me better than I knew myself. Chrissy Everett said that she hated playing with someone that she cared about. And there was a time she didn't want to play Martina Navratilova because she liked her too much. Talk about their relationship. Well, it's really the most unique sports rivalry and relationship, I think, in sports history. I can't name another instance of two absolute immortal Hall of Fame greats uh, in which uh, one of them was maid of honor at the other's wedding, right. uh, which Chrissy Everett did. Chrissy Everett was Martina's maid of honor when she got married to her partner, Julie, uh, Lem uh, Julia Lemakova. Uh, in 2016, Chrissy was the the woman standing next to Martina as her maid of honor uh, at the wedding. Wow. Uh, you know, it, they they met as teenagers when they were 16 and 18 years old, respectively. Uh, Martina was, you know, fresh from behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia uh, during the communist regime, and Chrissy was very friendly and generous to Martina, uh, asked her to be her doubles partner, befriended her, really welcomed this vulnerable young woman. Uh, and and showed her America, you know, and what it was to be American. Um, Chrissy was one of the very few people who knew that Martina was planning to defect at the 1975 U.S. Open. In fact, Martina went from losing to Chris on the court in the U.S. Open into Manhattan and into the protection of the FBI. Wow. Uh, and the relationship grew from there into this magnificent rivalry. Their matches are absolute masterpieces. And they had some periods of real estrangement over it. Uh, they went a couple years there without being very friendly. But by 1984, 1985, when they're really at their primes, they realized that they had accomplished something really extraordinary with those 18 Grand Slam titles each. It was almost a joint accomplishment. 
you know, I can't name two other great champions in history who had to play each other that often for that much at stake for all-time titles. I almost regard their 18 Grand Slams each as 36. <laughs> because know? they did it together. Because they had to beat the other greatest player in mm -hmm. almost in history, you know? Well, I don't know whether Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain rivals that Very or not. Very similar. Very similar. But let me play Very a similar. clip. And this is an interview I did back in 2001. Uh, Bill Russell was uh, here at WHYY talking about a, a book that he wrote called Russell Rules. This is a very short little clip. And, and he talks about this rivalry that he had with Will Chamberlain, who, of course, had played with the Philadelphia 76ers. I had a competition with Wilt. See, it was not a rivalry. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the difference is in a rivalry, one would have to be vanquished. And that did not happen. Uh, we both were enormously successful in what we were doing, although we were doing the same thing in a completely different style or approach. I, I like that difference between a rivalry and a competition. It's a lovely observation, and it's absolutely true in Martina and Chrissy's case. I think that that is the conclusion that they came to. Uh, Martina at one point said that it was uh, she hated for one one of them to think that the other one was really better. She didn't think there was truth in that. You know, they were equally superb. But it's so interesting to have such a close relationship with someone and then to compete against them, you know, on a tennis court in, in this instance. I mean, just how you have to compartmentalize how you feel about that person across the, the net from you. And it was obviously very difficult, especially for Chrissy, because as you say, uh, Chris Everett was uncomfortable playing people she was close to and liked. Uh, it was very difficult for her. It made her sick almost. And her way of dealing with it was to uh, dump Martina as her doubles partner, uh, which wounded Martina a great deal, and to cultivate some distance from her. Uh, and later, Martina did the same thing to Chris when Martina really wanted to be number one in the world and and win Grand Slams. And she resented that nobody regarded her as a real rival to Chrissy. Yvonne Gulagong was considered the big rival. And Martina thought, you know, what about me? And, and so then she cultivated a certain coldness, um, a real coldness, actually, towards Chrissy for a year or two in their in their relationship. But again, there's this great reconciliation at the end of their careers because it was always just the two of them left alone in the locker room. Yeah. And they really had the same goal, ultimately, which was to build women's tennis, but also to build women. Uh, they were very conscious of the fact that they were, you know, revolutionaries in a lot of ways in terms of granting women in the 70s and 80s the right to really compete unfetteredly and with intensity. And so they had a goal in common there. And they also had that early experience as teenagers when they, they knew they liked each other. Uh, they knew that they felt real warm towards each other. And they reach an agreement where they, they, they basically say to each other, let's not listen to people from each other's camps anymore who are stirring up animosity. Let's not listen to the press that really wants to pit us at each other uh, politically or socially or culturally as, you know, the 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 feminine versus the the gay the strong gay woman let's not listen to any of that we will talk to each other directly we will compete directly but we will have a mutual understanding that we are not going to go to the mean side of this relationship Sally do you play sports or did you play sports as a kid growing up I did I played everything I was a you know if if it was a game I played it my <laughs> my passion was basketball in high school 
Uh, and uh, I abandoned that for smoking and writing in college. Uh, but came <laughs> That'll back do to it for you, right? <laughs> yeah, I came back to it uh, later. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big cyclist. I'm a big tennis player. I'm a manic pickleballer now. Oh, goodness. The, uh, the fastest growing really, sport in America, I think. Which would really chagrin Billie Jean King. Her shoulders yeah. slump and her head falls when she hears the word pickleball because <laughs> She really is trying. She wants to grow tennis and pickleball is sort of robbing yeah. the tennis audience a little bit of participation. But uh, no, I, I, you know, I, I struggle to get as much exercise as I would like uh, because I work at a desk from the neck up so much of the time, mm. but. Neck up, neck down. We're almost out of time here. What's the best part of covering sports for you? Oh, the, the discovery of, of great personalities like a Chris Everett or a Martina Navratilova and discovering that they're just as flawed or insecure as you or me, uh, but they have learned to deal with those things in ways that I consider, you know, so courageous and uh, really beautiful and uh, resiliently. Uh, I, I My respect for athletes uh, across the board grows and grows rather than diminishes the longer I do this. Just because you, you get so close to this kind of greatness, this discipline? Yeah, you just can't watch it without understanding, A, there's something pretty profound going on underneath their skin that that neurologically, again, um, and, and psychologically. But also, I mean, they really, uh, they face up to real insecurities in a way that I just really admire. They, they face up to their shortcomings with a much... Uh, greater emotional resilience than I think I have in my own life. And I've learned a lot from uh, watching them. I actually have changed the way I work and the way I write and the way I've learned to scare myself a little bit more, to risk more, to push all my professional chips into the middle of the table and really invest in what I'm doing. You know, so many of the time, so much of the time we can disguise our insecurity with nonchalance. You know, Uh, I spent some years acting like I didn't care that much about what I was doing. And I've learned from athletes to uh, to try to perform with unembarrassed intensity and unembarrassed investment in the fact that I want to be really good at what I do. Well, Sally Jenkins, yes, we got to leave it there. Sally Jenkins, thanks so much for joining us today on The Connection. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Uh, I did as well. And the book is called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. Al Banks, our engineer, the show produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Thanks for joining us.